Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Crisis Intervention, Five Critical Steps to Understand the Psychology of a Client's Crisis and Know What to Do to Help. Gripping the sheared shard of glass in her dripping hand, she suddenly thrust the sharp end towards my face. This is a true account, and serrated shadows from the fading light of her bedsit seemed to take on a life of their own, stabbing at me from all angles, and it was a terrifying situation. And this wasn't the sickening thrill of a slow-mo nightmare or a horror film. This was reality. Never in my wildest dreams had I imagined psychotherapy could be this dangerous. So what am I talking about? But of course, this wasn't psychotherapy per se. Maybe psychotherapy could have helped Emma as the stresses and strains built up before she tipped into psychosis. But it was too late for that now. Now was the time for pure practical crisis management and more immediately for survival. As Emma screamed of the murderous ghosts tormenting her, myself seemingly included, my inner portfolio of solution-focused questions didn't quite seem to fit the situation. As fear tightened its grip, I felt immobilized, you know, keep calm, I told myself, and above all, keep thinking, getting in too deep. Not long after qualifying as a therapist, I'd been asked by an ex-psychiatric nurse colleague to make a house call to a patient who could use some help relaxing. That was the remit that I got. I'd never met this patient and knew almost nothing about her, but keen to prove myself, I took on the task and headed around to her house. Not five minutes later, I was trapped. Before I knew it, Emma had closed the door behind me without so much as a hello, sat me down, punched a window as if immune to pain, scooped up a dagger like shard of glass and began bellowing of her immediate need to kill those effing ghosts. So my first thought was, of course, how do I get out of here? How can I escape this? But given my line of work, it wasn't long before I also wondered How can she get what she needs in this emergency? What I was doing here wasn't psychotherapy or crisis management. So what was it? Well, at least in the short term, it was survival. You know, she looked like she might actually um, attempt to kill me with with this shard of glass. So there must be some way out of here. There was no sense in trying to stop her from reaching breaking point because she'd long since past breaking point. I entered the situation ill-prepared and too late in the cycle of her stress build-up and tipping into psychosis. And I couldn't blame my ex-colleague. It was my own heedless desperation to get my psychotherapy practice off the ground that got me into this mess. And of course, crises aren't always that dramatic or dangerous. You know, most personal crisis points don't manifest in a way that's as disconnected from reality as what I saw with Emma in that situation. But I do believe there's always some kind of reality disconnect during times of crisis or psychological crisis. And I'll talk more about that soon. Interestingly enough, it was psychology that got me out of that situation and helped Emma to get what she really needed. But more of that in a moment. So first I want to talk about helping people out of crisis before it gets to such an explosive point. So what happens to people when they reach crisis point? Why do some people start to act alarmingly out of character? And what can we do 
to prevent it or deal with it. So the best crisis is the one averted because we saw it coming and did something about it. Averting a crisis. Now, I don't mean to glorify the past, but I do think it's possible that emotional crisis is more widespread now because of less cohesive communities and increased social isolation, job insecurity and more fluid relationships. You know, many people uh, these days do feel isolated and the old safety nets of strong community may be much weaker than they once were. We psychotherapists and coaches and counsellors are lucky and that often we won't be the ones on the front line of client crisis. Social workers, doctors, nurses, even the police may all be called upon to help before a psychotherapist is needed, or I should say after a psychotherapist was needed. There are different kinds of crisis, of course, you know, crisis brought on by widespread disaster, warfare, earthquake or famine isn't what this is about, not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the personal emotional crisis. And of course, personal life crisis can be connected to wider societal events, but it needn't be. So what exactly is an emotional crisis? Two signs of crisis. So we recognize there are two broad types of crisis, energized and de-energized. The former, energized, is characterized by agitation, sometimes to the point where a person becomes destructive to themselves or others. An energized crisis can involve extreme restlessness, inability to concentrate, pacing up and down, wringing of hands, constant adjusting of clothing, sleeplessness, obsessionality, incessant talking, sleep loss, impulsivity, and out-of-character risk-taking. This general and uncontrolled agitation has been associated with increased risk of suicide. See reference one. So often there's an energization before suicide. The second type of crisis occurs when a person feels so trapped and helpless or sometimes exhausted from an energized crisis that they can't bring themselves to do anything at all. Their life grinds to a halt. They may stop eating washing, and even talking. And we often refer to this type of crisis as de-energized. In this state, people feel sapped of energy, almost paralyzed. They lose all motivation, self-confidence, and interest as feelings or uh, of uh, powerlessness and hopelessness take over. And it's important to note that some medication side effects may precipitate either kinds of crisis, and also that it's a continuum and we can have a mini crisis a little bit along this continuum. But there's something really important to understand about any kind of phase of a crisis, disconnecting from reality. So for friends, partners, or relatives of someone entering an emotional crisis, what can be really scary is how the person's personality seems to change. A normally humorous, bubbly person may become deadly serious and withdrawn and start to see their reality in hopeless terms that don't seem to reflect their true situation. The usually sensible friend may start spouting wild ideas and suggestions with no regard for common sense or the way reality actually works. For the 1% of the population prone to psychosis, a buildup of stress may result in an almost complete disconnect with reality as the person's internal thoughts and imagination become their new reality, and the real world falls away. I saw one man who took to lying in the garden for hours, sometimes in the pouring rain, after his girlfriend had left him. Needless to say, his family 
were really distressed about him because it was so out of character. Uh, there'll normally uh, be some reality disconnect in all emotional crises, but not often to the extent of total reality disconnect. The common element to both kinds of crisis, uh, symptomology, is stress buildup. So what might cause feelings of unbearable overwhelm? Causes. Where does the crisis originate? So stress happens when we're not meeting our basic primal emotional needs. And it builds more and more as we worry about not meeting those needs. The hunger or thirst to meet those emotional needs builds to a pitch. Stress is merely a signal of thirst or hunger on the emotional level. Relationship breakups, um, job loss, illness, bereavement, poverty, being bullied or threatened, the residual effects of unresolved trauma, and any other stressors all have the potential to precipitate a crisis. Even boredom is a type of stress, signaling that our innate needs for challenge or excitement are not being met. But other stress signals include fear, depression, and anger. Strong, unremitting emotion leads to an overactive imagination that can conjure very real fears or ideas about the self, ideas that can start to feel more real than life itself. And this happens partly through disrupted sleep and partly through stress's effect on how the brain normally works to question and modify the imagination. When someone's in crisis, they'll invariably have come to believe stuff that may seem bizarre even to their normal self. Or usually they wouldn't believe that stuff. This is called trance logic and can happen to many people in crisis, not just those prone to psychosis, but anybody. And this explains a scary change in character of those in crisis. Often a person veering towards crisis will not have strong enough self-objectivity during that time because of the distorting effects of high emotion to realize they need a break, to make the effort to talk to someone about what they're going through or to identify what needs to happen to help them out of the crisis. Okay. And unless someone in their community sees the warning signs and takes steps to help that person, uh, they might tumble into crisis after crisis. Frightening changes, the mystery of trance logic. So have you ever noticed that when you're dreaming, stuff that would usually seem bizarre, like talking animals, you just accept as normal when you're in the dream? Okay, that's a kind of trance logic. In a dream state, you're processing reality purely through your imagination. The normal rules of logic don't apply because that part of the brain is asleep. The way we interpret events in this type of state is sometimes called trance logic because during hypnosis, it seems the dream machinery of the brain that's normally activated during REM sleep is able to be accessed during the waking state. In hypnotic trance, the contents and processes of the imagination tend to re remain unquestioned by the conscious or analytical mind. People that are experiencing stress buildup or high emotionality may have stopped sleeping, meaning REM states may start to break out during wakefulness. This coupled with overactivation of the stress-fueled imagination can inhibit the prefrontal lobes in the brain, which are normally uh, responsible for reality checking. So how does this relate to emotional crisis? Processing life through an agitated mind. So trance logic is what makes people act so out of character when approaching an emotional crisis. Just as we believe and think things in a dream uh, that we'd never normally think and believe, so do people acting under trance logic think and believe and act in ways they'd never normally 
actin. The important thing here is to understand that the REM state, so-called paradoxical sleep, normally associated with dreaming, isn't a state just confined to sleep. So here are some examples. A friend of mine began to believe the man upstairs was targeting him through microwave bombardment. Okay, Even during his crisis, he questioned whether he was just imagining it. He kept saying, maybe I'm just imagining this. But he kept coming back to the idea. After the crisis passed, he couldn't believe it ever entertained such an idea, let alone become fixated by it. One client convinced himself he was about to lose his house, even though he had no real financial problems. A woman imagined all her friends had come to hate her and that she was in love with her friend's 60-year-old son. She started imagining that he was hinting that they should run away together, even though he had no idea of her infatuation. After the crisis had passed, she had no such feelings and felt acutely embarrassed by her, as she put it, crazy ideas. These are not full-blown psychotic delusions. They're just the result of a stress-fueled imagination that has failed to perform the proper reality checks. And in fact, trance logic probably affects all of us sometimes when we're extremely angry or jealous, for example. And it certainly explains the phenomenon of so-called brainwashing in which intelligent people can come to believe all kinds of strange things through emotional conditioning as occurs in a cult in which trance logic is used. It's a cliche to assume bizarre actions and beliefs are a cry for help, as people often like to suggest when they just can't understand why someone uh, would do or think such a thing. And of course, on, on some level, the person is crying out for help. But it's important to understand the point of view of the client who may be perceiving reality through their own temporary trance logic. Trying to argue logically with someone experiencing reality through trance logic may just produce a rubber band effect, okay, uh, in which you pull one way and they pull hard about the other. Emotions fuel beliefs, and until the emotions are dealt with, the, the beliefs or delusions tend to remain fixed. So, okay, so let's get more practical. What can we actually do when someone is approaching a crisis? So how to help heal or prevent a crisis? Number one, ascertain safety. So before you do anything, know the answers to the following questions. So firstly, has the person started to use maladaptive coping strategies, attempts at escapism that are exacerbating the problem? Do they need physical medical help before any psychological intervention? Is there someone they have access to 24-7, someone they can call if they need, need to, or someone who can check them out and look after them? Are they engaging in self-harm? This might be alcohol or drug use or out-of-character promiscuity even, or refusal to get out of bed or leave the safety of one room or, you know, they've stopped eating. Okay. Are they a threat to someone else? Have they threatened suicide? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you may need to enlist the help of other professionals. And it's handy to have a list of numbers and contacts, a community of professionals that you can call on if need be. So we've all heard the proverb that it takes a village to raise a child. And sometimes it can take that whole village to help one community member in crisis. Okay. Step two, calm your client. The common element to all personal and psychological crisis is stress. Reassure your client that the myriad of 
uh, worries, fears or obsessions bombarding them can take a back seat for a while as they rest and recoup healthy energy again. If you're trained in ways to relax your client, and most therapists and coaches are nowadays, then teach them to rest and relax regularly. Help them meet their immediate needs for attention and connection through reality rather than imagination. This, this might uh, be as simple as getting them to go for a walk and look around them every day for a while to reconnect to out there, not just in their head. If they're suffering from post-traumatic uh, stress disorders or debilitating phobias, de-traumatize your client using an ethical, non-invasive and comfortable method such as the rewind technique. And just as fire needs oxygen to burn, a crisis needs strong emotion to feel it. So once the mind calms and energy returns, not just frantic energy, but calm energy, the crisis has essentially passed, even if external problems remain. Okay. So once calm is restored, we can go on to the next step. So step three, engage resources. Ascertain your client's awareness of their resources, social, professional, and personal. The more embedded someone is in a community and the more friends and family they have access to, the more resilient they tend to be. This even seems to extend to physical resiliency, such as pain thresholds, see reference two. Social isolation and loneliness, see reference three, doesn't just mean a crisis is less likely to be picked up, but also that it might be harder for the person to re-emerge from it once the crisis has uh, set in. So encourage and help the person to access their social support network, but respect their decision if they want to keep their crisis private. Okay. You could also gently talk to them about the kind of person they are underneath all of this. Okay. What they've done in the past and uh, times when they've pulled through and so forth. Okay. Basically, you want to reconnect them with the personal qualities and sense of self they have when they're not in crisis. I worked with a man who had uh, threatened suicide and was refusing to leave his room. And as I coaxed him into talking about the things he had achieved in his life 10 years before, he eventually started to feel that he did have the personal resources to pull through the hard time he was going through. So reconnecting someone to a sense of competency and, and confidence that they may have had in the past. This is a kind of remembered wellness that can help get a sense of wellness back into the present. Personal resources can come from the most surprising of situations. You know, so if you watch my uh, therapy session videos online inside UPTV, you'll see that there's an example in my second session with Tansy, who needs help with overcoming fear and increasing self-confidence. And during the session, I locate a resource from the past of a time when she kept calm while her, while her daughter self-harmed through cutting and had to be taken to hospital. Now, on the face of it, that might not seem like a resourceful time, but for Tansy, you'll see that it is. So resources can come in surprising forms. Okay. It also, um, it, it might be an idea to have a list of professional agencies to call upon if your client needs additional support or help. Okay. Number four, ascertain their beliefs during the crisis. Beliefs will be skewed during a personal crisis. Terror, depression, and helplessness are all feelings that warp thoughts and beliefs. 
ascertain what the trance logic of strong, exhausting emotion has them believing. And this can be done through listening to what they say about themselves and the world. So context and perspective tend to get completely fogged out. Do they blame themselves excessively? Do they have unrealistically bleak beliefs about their situation, such as my client who thought he was about to lose his house when his finances were fine? Do they approach their reality in unrealistic, black and white, all or nothing ways? Once you've helped calm your client on a day-to-day basis, then you're better placed to help reframe any more destructive beliefs that they might have. Only when your client has become less stressed will they regain access to their prefrontal lobes and start to be able to see logic again and think clearly. This is the time to intervene, not before. Trying to do cognitive therapy when someone is still flooded with stress is like trying to light a candle in a hurricane. So, so often we need to calm them right down first. Eventually, once energy is restored or balanced, if they've been full of nervous energy, you can do the following. So step number five, help them find hope through an action plan. Okay, once they're calm enough to think strategically. During a crisis, life may seem overwhelmingly chaotic, an unfathomable mess. Once the initial emergency has passed, we want to depotentiate any re-escalation of stressful feelings by helping make the mess of life feel negotiable again. A useful way to do that is to make an action plan with steps towards feeling better again. And it's not that we're going to sort out all their problems in one step, but just taking things a step at a time. Even if the first step is just to withdraw and rest for a little longer, knowing there are steps to follow helps in itself by rebuilding that all-important sense of control. We all need a sense of autonomy, a belief that we can influence our own lives. And we all need a meaning and a purpose, even if it's as simple as getting back to full health. So an action plan should include ways to work towards meeting the client's primal emotional needs, and can also include usable strategies to head off any future crisis episodes well before they get so bad again. And this can be deeply reassuring, as many people fear sometimes, to an almost phobic degree, ever going off the rails again. I don't want to ever feel that bad again. Part of our job is to show them that they needn't harbour that fear anymore, that they needn't ever get like that again. Anyway, all this is a far cry from my nerve-frazzling experience 27 years ago. So first, let's survive. As I cowered in Emma's darkened bedsit, as she manically waved razor-sharp glass right before my eyes and screamed about needing to kill those effing ghosts, I thought fast and asked myself, what is a basic universal psychological principle I can use to help calm this situation? And I thought of Milton Erickson's principle of utilisation, of building profound rapport with the client by inhabiting their reality rather than conflicting with it. Okay, so before trying to lead someone somewhere else, you need to connect with them. So I didn't shout, but I raised my voice loud enough that I knew she'd hear. And I said, I shouted, I'm going to kill those effing ghosts. And she looked startled. And I could tell the trance was broken just a little. And she almost smiled. Knowing I was making progress, I shouted it louder and said I knew a way to kill them. I knew a way to kill those ghosts. And then I asked her if she wanted to know how I could kill them. And she nodded uncertainly, and I told her I needed to get outside because they were out there and I needed to stop them coming in. 
And I worked within her trance logic. And I stood up and she let me pass without stabbing me. And momentarily forgetting about the glass dagger in her bleeding hand, I walked out of the house. And the moment I got outside her door, I told her to wait in her home, not to answer the door or leave, that I would deal with these effing ghosts. And I went to her neighbor's house and asked whether I could use their phone. And this was before cell phones were a thing. And I called the police and they contacted her social worker and an ambulance. And she was admitted under section one. That's forcibly. And I learned uh, a massive lesson from all of that. So no thanks to me, but I heard through my old colleague that Emma did eventually come through her crisis, that she left the hospital uh, eventually and things calmed down and her life started providing her with meaning and satisfaction. Uh, and as one final thought, I think it's always worth bearing in mind that sometimes a person can come through a crisis and end up feeling better than they did before. Sometimes when change has been needing to happen for a while, it isn't until things get so bad or really bad until change becomes a necessity that a person finally seeks the help they need or starts living in a way they have to live because things got so bad. Remember, a crisis can be a doorway to something better. And in this way, a crisis point can become a turning point. Hope and calm are not drug prescriptions, but they are powerful and we can help our clients rediscover them. And in the words of Emily Dickinson, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings a tune without words and never stops at all. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. And if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Thank you.